The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why are CAPTCHAs so frustrating and, in a way, so grim and disconcerting? Plus, botanists have identified the first carnivorous plant in 20 years, but don't go calling it Audrey 3 just yet. And a new development in the McFlurry Cold War. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. When was the last time you had to complete a CAPTCHA puzzle? Probably earlier today. Maybe just a few minutes ago. I think the last one I did was about an hour ago when I was trying to access pre-sale tickets for The Great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze, an annual display of over 7,000 pumpkins arranged in statues and creative structures near Sleepy Hollow in New York. Fortunately, I think that was one of those no-captcha recaptchas that just makes you tick the box beside I'm not a robot instead of having to painstakingly read some barely legible text or decide whether that smudge of black counts as a truck. At least, if it believes you and doesn't trigger a follow-up test with just that. Even though we get that they're useful both in preventing bots and in training various forms of AI to perform better, CAPTCHAs can still be pretty dang annoying. The science and tech journalist Clive Thompson recently wrote about the depressing nature of CAPTCHA photos on his personal medium, and I thought he and his Twitter followers had some intriguing insights. But first, a little background on CAPTCHA, courtesy of a Wired piece from May. Quote, CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. The Turing Test was created in 1950 by Alan Turing, a British mathematician considered a founding father of artificial intelligence, to help determine whether a computer can demonstrate intelligent behavior similar to a person. Turing called it the imitation game. Louis von Ahn helped develop the modern CAPTCHA as a grad student at Carnegie Mellon University, where he is now a consulting professor, and later invented reCAPTCHA, which Google acquired. The goal of CAPTCHA is to create tests or puzzles that humans can solve, but bots can't. So you, a mere mortal, might have a shot at a decent seat to a Springsteen concert when they go on sale at one second past the hour. End quote. Google uses all kinds of data to determine if someone is human, not merely how they perform on the puzzle. So-called invisible CAPTCHAs might look at your browsing history, cookies, and physical micro-movements. But that puzzle can be pretty frustrating for us humans, which may be kind of the point, and one of our tells. Mauro Migliardi, associate professor at the University of Padua in Italy, told Wired, quote, Usually artificial intelligence systems are capable of coping better than humans because, as an example, they don't suffer from annoyance, they are infinitely patient, and they don't care about wasting time, end quote. And for all that sets us apart from AI, when we interact with a CAPTCHA, we're on their turf. 
So Clive Thompson, upon realizing how depressing CAPTCHA photos are to him, he said, quote, each cube here is a tone poem in melancholia, end quote. He set to figure out why that is. And ironically, most of his reasons kind of amount to the CAPTCHA's lack of humanity. Case in point, none of the photos have humans in them. They're all outside of human-created structures, but without any people. Quoting Thompson, it winds up making the pictures look totally post-apocalyptic. Each CAPTCHA depicts a world blasted by a neutron bomb, where the objects survive, but none of the people do. End quote. And even though the photos are all outside, none of them are of nature, giving even more credence to that brutalist post-apocalyptic feel. Of course, there's a reason for both of these points. They avoid having humans due to privacy and avoid nature because the photos are training their AI, especially for the last few years, their self-driving AI. They need to recognize all kinds of objects you might find in and around motorways, like signs, traffic lights, crosswalks, and other vehicles, but plants and animals are less important. And the photos are also blurry, increasingly so, and this doesn't just make them kind of tough to parse out sometimes, but adds to the lack of aesthetic satisfaction. As Miriam Gerar, a researcher at the University of Genoa, Italy, told Wired, quote, The challenge presents often noisy and blurry images in order to make it harder to recognize for bots using state-of-the-art image recognition technologies. Noise, distraction of images, making them blurry, these are known as anti-recognition mechanisms, end quote. Basically, Google's AI is getting smarter. All of the easy, clear photos have been parsed, and now they've moved on to trickier ones. Trickier for the AI, and for us. One of Thompson's points that I find most intriguing, however, is the realization, via writer Emily Gordon in response to Thompson on Twitter, that all of the photos are from awkward, atypical angles. Quoting Thompson, When you or I take a picture, we typically shoot from the view of our eyes. We're usually holding the camera. Our body is inherently involved in framing the view. But CAPTCHA photos were taken to train self-driving cars, so they were shot from the vantage point of cameras mounted on Google's Waymo experimental vehicles. That's why the angles are just so oddly off. End quote. It's a subtle observation, but totally explains what's so jolting about some of the photos, and something you can't unsee after realizing it. As Thompson sums up, quote, Here's the thing, ultimately, about Google's CAPTCHA images. They weren't taken by humans, and they weren't taken for humans. They are by AI for AI. They thus lack any sense of human composition or human audience. They are creations of utterly bloodless industrial logic. Google's CAPTCHA images demand you to look at the world the way an AI does. End quote. They demand we look at the world the way an AI does. And yet, the key to solving them and gaining entrance to whatever site you're attempting to is to prove how utterly human you are. On that note, here are some tips from Wired on having a more seamless experience with reCAPTCHA. They recommend keeping your browser up to date because apparently bots won't be careful in updating theirs, so an updated browser is a sign that you're human, which honestly just sounds like the kind of propaganda poster that would show up in a Time Variance Authority-style authoritarian cyber future. Happy browsers make happy humans. Ugh. 
Google's support page also recommends enabling JavaScript and disabling plugins if you're having issues. And if you want to get through quickly, like when you're trying to book tickets for something, do anything you can to prove that you're human, which mostly means giving the reCAPTCHA a bunch of information about yourself so it can assess your humanity. Things like logging into your Google account beforehand, allowing cookies on a website, etc. Of course, if you are concerned about privacy, you should clear those and log out afterwards. And rest easy knowing that Google is working every day to make the CAPTCHA experience better for humans, which might mean giving up some of our privacy and agency because that seems to be the only currency accepted by convenience these days. But hey, it's the robot's world. We just live in it. If you live on the Pacific coast of the U.S. or Canada and come upon a small white flower with yellow dews of pollen dotting the tips of its petals and a tall, sticky stem, stay back. Because scientists at the University of British Columbia have recently identified that flower as carnivorous. Well, alright, you don't need to be worried, but insects beware. The western false asphodel uses that sticky stem to catch insects and then digest them. NPR points out that the wildflower was first identified in scientific literature in 1879, but wasn't known to be carnivorous until a new study published earlier this week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It is the first carnivorous plant to be formally discovered in 20 years. The New York Times explains that of the 13 known families of carnivorous plants, most of them live in, quote, sunny, moist habitats where vital nutrients are in short supply, peat bogs, acidic fens, jungle canopies, and have to get their nourishment from living prey, end quote. The western false asphodel dwelling in bogs of the Pacific Northwest meets the mark for that kind of nutrient-poor habitat, but no one ever really stopped to consider its appetite, since, as co-author Qian Shi Lin says, the flower doesn't really have any practical uses, so people just haven't studied or learnt much about it. And could that mean that there are even more carnivorous plants out there than we previously considered? Maybe so, and a good place to start might be the three sister species of the western false asphodel. The University of British Columbia team only studied this one because it was on their field site in Vancouver where they were doing an unrelated study on plant genetics. And during the study, they noticed that the false asphodel had a genetic deletion that's sometimes associated with carnivorous plants. That led them to think that perhaps that hairy, sticky stem that bugs got caught in wasn't merely a defensive strategy, but also a method of meal preparation. Quoting the New York Times, To prove that a plant is carnivorous, you have to show that nutrients travel from animals to plants. To test this, Dr. Lin and his colleagues laced fruit flies with nitrogen-15 isotopes and placed them on the false asphodel stems, as well as on the carnivorous sundew and the more innocuous wandering fleabane. When they checked all three plants' nitrogen levels, Dr. Lin said, they found that the sundew and the false asphodel had absorbed roughly the same amount of nitrogen isotopes. And to clinch it, the hairs on the false asphodel's stem secreted a phosphatase, a digestive enzyme many carnivorous plant species use to pull phosphorus from insects. The western false asphodel was indeed digesting prey. End quote. Dr. Lin also added that the extra nutrients in the flowers and fruits could be helping the plant reproduce, with some even being stored in the roots to help in the following season. 
Though, quoting NPR, usually carnivorous plants keep their deadly traps far away from their flowers, so there's no danger of accidentally killing off pollinators. But in this case, it looks like the stem is only able to ensnare tiny insects, such as midges, not the larger bees or butterflies involved in pollination. End quote. And is simply digesting the animals that land on the stem really carnivorous? Andreas Fleischmann, curator of vascular plants at the Bavarian Natural History Collection, says no. He told the Times that the main criterion, in his opinion, is whether the plant attracts prey, which the western false asphodel has not yet shown to do. Fleischmann, paraphrased by the Times and sounding like the kind of southern vegetarian who will eat meat if it came from an animal that a neighbor accidentally hit with their car, said, quote, Waste not the insects you defensively kill. End quote. So the dainty western false asphodel is no Audrey too, but as Gizmodo said, quote, If you have any pet flies, you may want to keep them on a tight leash the next time you're traipsing around bogs along the west coast. End quote. So this past April, I shared a story about the McDonald's ice cream machines and a third-party company called Kitsch, K-Y-T-C-H, and the ongoing standoff between the two. Well, this week, we got a bit of an update. I'll put a link to listen to the episode in the show notes in case you missed it, but as a quick refresher, basically, the McDonald's ice cream machines all come from one company called Taylor. They provide the Taylor C602 digital ice cream machine to most McDonald's out there, and they're souped up for maximum efficiency for the fast food chain. But they're also super temperamental and particular, and they can only be fixed by an official Taylor technician. When they're broken, they won't tell you why. Unless you know the 16-button sequence to input that reveals diagnostics and decrypts the error codes. And that little hack is not anywhere in the Taylor C602 manual, but entrepreneur Jeremy O'Sullivan, who used to own a few Taylor machines for his Froyo business, figured it out a few years ago. And he then built a product called Kitsch that can be installed on the machines to display user-friendly explanations about any issues the machine experiences. He and his team successfully sold the Kitsch device to several McDonald's franchise locations, which, as you can imagine, Taylor wasn't so happy about. So they allegedly got a McDonald's worker to hand over a Kitsch and then used it to create their own version, the Taylor Shake Sunday Connectivity. They also used scare tactics to get McDonald's restaurants to stop using Kitsch, which basically tanked Kitsch as a company. Now, back when I covered this story in April, the latest was that O'Sullivan and his team was planning to file a lawsuit against Taylor, but that he had basically accepted the company was over. He was only going forward with legal action to mount a defense of right-to-repair laws. Well, this week, they got a small victory. A judge awarded a temporary restraining order against Taylor. Quoting Gizmodo, As a result of the court order, Taylor now has 24 hours to turn over all of its kitsch solution devices. Defendants must not use, copy, disclose, or otherwise make available in any way information, including formula, pattern, compilation, program, device, method, technique, or process obtained by any of them, the court document said. End quote. It's a small step, but it's an important move in the right-to-repair fight. Quoting again from Gizmodo, Taylor is a particularly egregious purveyor that serves as a perfect example of the exact business model right-to-repair advocates are trying to abolish. Sell businesses a persnickety machine that's likely to break down, prevent them from understanding exactly where the malfunction is occurring, and then help yourself to a healthy cut of the distributor's profit from the resultant repairs. End quote. 
And as Kitsch co-founder Melissa Nelson told Motherboard, quote, It's disgusting that such lengths were taken to steal our trade secrets, destroy our business, and to stand in the way of modernizing kitchens. Kitsch is just a small piece of the broader right-to-repair movement. But our case makes clear that it's past time to end shady business practices that create hundreds of millions of dollars of unnecessary repair fees from certified technicians. End quote. Here, here. This is a case that could not only establish some much-needed precedents in right-to-repair laws, but also maybe, just maybe, end the era of perpetually broken McDonald's ice cream machines. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.